You're listening to the New Life Church Sunday Morning Podcast. We're a family of believers in Anderson, Missouri, that want to experience God in a real way, both inside and outside the walls of a building. For more Sunday messages, upcoming events, or to get in touch, visit new-life-church.net. I'm here this weekend with my family for the, the missions conference that New Life has put on Friday and Saturday, and uh, we're wrapping up this morning. So I'm really excited to be here, um, and thanks for, thanks for being here to worship together this morning. Uh, it was a powerful weekend, and um, I hope to do it justice with what I have to say this morning. Uh, if you weren't able to make it on Friday night and last night, uh, I would just say that it's really encouraging to see how the kingdom is moving forward all around the world, and even right here locally in McDonald County, in Neosho. Um, there's a lot of tables out there that you can find out more about how to make sure you answer that question in a positive way, and you can, in a lot of cases, stay right here. But just to hear of the ministry that's going on in Neosho, in Anderson, in Missouri, and around the world uh, was very encouraging to me. So that we should have no doubt that God's kingdom is going forward. So this morning, I'm going to talk about how Jesus is with us and how Jesus pushes us out on mission. The push and presence of Jesus. But I wanted to give a little update to you, to you all. You helped send us to Spain for five years as missionaries, and then you helped send us to Philadelphia, where I work in the home office of Surge. Um, so I wanted to tell you what's different in the last year. What is your support, your prayer, what has it done in the past year? Um, a new change for me in work and ministry is uh, I'm leading at Surge now. Uh, most of our efforts to go into closed countries, uh, secure locations where people aren't allowed to be missionaries. So I'm helping our local leaders on the field there uh, go to new countries and stay safe and secure. Um, I'm helping folks who say, I want to start a business and use that as my ministry. So I'm helping them get the tools and the training and the connections they need to move overseas and start business as mission or business for transformation is what we call it. So pray for me in those two areas. There's a, uh, a lot of people's lives and health and ministry uh, that hang in the balance, and I want to do a good job of serving those missionaries around the world as they go into some of the hardest, darkest places out of love for Jesus. So please pray for me. As a family, we're doing well. Our uh, kids are in school and thriving. We're part of a church that loves us where we're serving, so we thank God for that. Um, I got to say, if you want to find out more, if you want to take a picture of us home and pray for us, we have a table outside, so just grab one of those little cards with our family on it, and please pray for us. We depend on your prayers uh, for everything that we're doing. So let me pray, and we'll get started. Father in heaven, help us this morning to hear from you. Please give me boldness in what I have to say. Help me to forget about myself. Uh, please teach us, Lord. Open our hearts to be encouraged by your word and to be willing to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Your life doesn't belong to you. If you hold on, it too, hold on to it too tightly, 
it probably won't have a significant impact in the world. If you don't recognize the communal and eternal nature of your life, it'll be like a bird, a pet bird that somebody has and holds on to all the time and pets all the time, but never lets it fly. And eventually it'll die because it's not living the life it was intended to live. It'll be like a beautiful flower that's cut from the plant and held and smelled or put on your clothes, but cut off from sunlight and water and nutrients will wither pretty soon. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20 say, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, but you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your Bible. In your body, I'm sorry. Glorify God in your body. If you want to hear from God, read the Bible, right? Anybody sometimes say, I just wish God would tell me what to do. I wish I could hear God's voice. Open up the Bible and read it out loud and you'll hear God's voice. He says, you're not your own. You're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And I know this passage is a warning against immorality. It's not about missions. It's not about evangelism, but bear with me. It's clear that your body, your life doesn't belong to you. But it's also an invitation because if you do recognize the eternal and communal nature of your life, you can make an eternal impact. Your life can flourish. You can live the way that God intended you to live. Most likely not in the ways that you expect or imagine, but you will flourish. As I get started this morning, I want to say that uh, I'm not here to should all over you. This isn't a guilt trip. That was a tough crowd. I thought that was a good line. I'm not here to should all over you. It's not a guilt trip. What What I want to share this morning is a reminder that I need to believe for myself. And I assume that you're in the same situation that I'm in, and you need this reminder as well. It's easy for me to forget that eternity is eternal, and that life really is a vapor, and it's going to be gone like that. I need to be arrested and woken up from that illusion. Um, I recently heard a pastor talk about calling and his calling to ministry. Why is he a pastor? And he talked about normal stuff that you hear Christian leaders talk about all the time. He talked about gifts and abilities. Uh, He was good at studying the Bible and teaching it to people. He was a competent leader. And the Christians around him noticed that and affirmed that desire in his life. But then he talked about something that was interesting to me. He referenced Jeremiah 20, verse 9 in the Old Testament. And Jeremiah 20, verse 9 says, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot. He said that's one way he learned about his calling to ministry was when he tried to not do it, it was like there was a fire in his bones. He had to preach. And I want to take some time together and just ask ourselves, what, are, what is the fire in my bones? What is the fire in your bones? Where has God given you a burden and some abilities? And how might we use those if we are not our own, 
if we're bought with a price, how can we glorify God in our bodies? What's the fire in your bones? This is the plain truth of Christianity that it's easy to take for granted or gloss over, that Jesus has commanded us to take up our cross, to deny ourselves. He says in Matthew 16 and in Mark 8 and Luke 9, the same thing. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So we can call ourselves Christians, but are, have we done this? Are we daily denying ourselves and taking up our crosses and following Jesus? Or do we feel like we can just attach the name Christian to ourselves and we're fine? Jesus says in Mark 8, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. And then it shows up five other times in the Bible, this same type of statement. So we want to be saved. Nobody wants to go to hell when they die. But the way Jesus explains it is you also have to give up your life. You have to lose your life in the worldly sense and the, and the way that the culture around you views keeping your life if you really want to be saved. Does this spark a fire in your bones? I think it... We're very uncomfortable with this as a society, by and large. I know when I'm being honest, I am. The idea that Jesus is asking me to to die, to deny myself, to take up a cross. And I think part of it is the moment that I've grown up in, there's an illusion of power and control, right? We have some sort of influence. Christianity, in some ways, fits in with American culture. We feel at home. We feel like this is where we belong. Whenever we get mad, we can exert our influence and power on the world around us and get what we want a little bit. I remember growing up um, living in a, a time when American Christians can mobilize around an issue that bothered them and force culture to bend to our wishes. We could boycott Disney and get our way. We could uh, protest some way of being politically or in our schools or in our culture and have some influence. And so it created this so-called Christian way to engage with society, politics, voting, and we would hook these moral or outward religious significances to all moral issues and suddenly what feels right for us or what's convenient for us or what's comfortable for us and our country or our passport or our property and our rights, we let those things override the clear teachings and commandments of Jesus of what Christianity is supposed to look like. So it's no longer that I love my neighbors and I pray for those who persecute me and I lay down my life for my friends and my enemies, but now it's I have control, I have power, you have to listen to me and do what I want. Does that fit with the Bible? In Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe, observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what did Jesus do when he was on earth? And as he's about to leave the earth, when he gives this commission to his followers, he gathers them together after his resurrection. He does this in, in all four Gospels, gathers his people around him and sends them out. And to paraphrase what Jesus is doing here, it's really interesting when you stop and think about it because he gets his closest followers together and he says, guys, this was never about us. This was never about our group. Can you imagine the surprise that the disciples had whenever their resurrected teacher gets them together and says, I'm about to leave, but it's not about us. I can relate to them. I, when I was nine or ten years old, went to Camp Enloe. Camp Enloe was our church's association church camp, summer camp. So every summer, all the little Baptist kids within a few hours' drive would go to Camp Enloe for a week. And it's just what you would imagine in a Baptist summer camp. You know, the long uh, cabins with no air conditioning, the box fan in the window, the musty, smelly bathrooms, the overcrowded pool, way too much chlorine and way too many kids, wood-paneled cafeteria, a nurse's cabin over on the edge of the woods where you had to get checked for lice before they'd let you stay. Uh, and every night we'd have a chapel service. A local pastor would come and preach every night, and he'd preach an evangelistic message so that these kids could hear the gospel. And after one of those messages one night, I didn't go forward to the altar like he was inviting everybody to do, but I, I went out the back door. And I went out into the, by the flagpole in the, in the grass. And I remember just being on my knees and laying down in the grass under the humid Missouri sky and crying and saying, I don't deserve for you to forgive me, but I need it. God, I don't deserve your forgiveness, but I need it. And that was one of the most important moments of my entire life, and I forget about it all the time. I forget about the center of my life, the love and forgiveness that I've received from Jesus, and get distracted with all these other things. So that makes me sympathetic to the disciples when they're surprised that Jesus says, guys, this wasn't about us. I get caught up in my life and my concerns and I forget about eternal things. On my phone, the bank app, the email app, and the calendar app get a lot more use than the Bible app, right? I have a vision for how my life should go, how I expect the world to bend to my plan, my wants, my needs. I can't even wait at a stoplight for two seconds when it's green without honking at the guy in front of me, right? How dare he slow down the kingdom of Brian? I'm important. I got places to be. So that makes me empathetic to these disciples when the Great Commission was a bombshell in their lives because their minds were probably set on a much different 
kind of life after they left everything to follow Jesus. They envisioned political power and influence. They, they envisioned earthly, present, flourishing for themselves. They envisioned a Messiah warrior who was going to come and overthrow the people who were making life difficult for them. They were going to have power. Israel was going to be restored on earth. And they thought, we followed the Messiah who was going to start this thing. And so we should get to be in the inner circle of power. Life should be great for us. We get to sit beside him as he rules. And what Jesus says is, the way you expected life to go is not how it's going to go when you follow me. I know what it's like to feel that way. I know what it's like to have a very concrete set of expectations of what life should look like for me. And then Jesus, like he loves to do, totally taking that set of expectations and turning it upside down. Jesus is the guy who said, love your enemies. Jesus is the guy who said, forgive 70 times 7. He said, if anyone sues you for your tunic, go ahead and give them your cloak too. He said, if someone makes you walk a mile, walk two miles. Does this fit anywhere in what we view a life with Jesus in 2020 to look like? This is a guy who, he's changing the whole system. It was as radical back then as it is today, and it's still the kind of life that he's calling us to. This is who we follow. And I want to say, does this have any space in your, in your life? What Jesus is saying to his disciples is that it's not about a political takeover or you guys being my inner circle to restore some sort of national power. It's not about your comfort or your future. What Jesus is saying is, I want what we have, disciples, this type of life of teaching and healing and serving, I want that kind of life to spread. He sends them out. I want disciples from all over the world, Jesus says. I want worshipers from every tribe. The promise to Abraham isn't fulfilled through politics or war, but it's filled through discipleship and love. Does this spark a fire in your bones? God's kingdom used to be come and see. When you read the Old Testament, it was come and see. Come to the physical temple. Now it's go and tell. It used to be about who's out, and now it's about the walls are down and everyone is invited in. It used to be that you needed to talk a certain way, carry a certain DNA, and now the doors are blown off. We have become a church on mission. Jesus sends us out. Uh, Swiss theologian Emil Brunner said, the church exists by mission as fire exists by burning. When a fire isn't burning anymore, it's not a fire. When a church isn't on mission anymore, it's not a church. So if you say you're a follower of Jesus, but you're not on mission for him to make disciples, you're not what you say you are. When you come to Christ, you came to a rescuer. When you knew he was saving your life, you were glad to give your life back to him. Do you remember that joy? Do you remember that fire in your bones, that refreshment?
have you lost it? Have you gotten comfortable and distracted with the material world, the ladder to success, living for your own little kingdom? How's that going for you? Jesus is not condemning you. He's inviting you into the life that you were made for. This isn't a guilt trip sermon. It's an invitation to what you were really made for. Do you remember that Jesus called you to a cross, not the couch? And that's not all that Jesus said. He didn't just say go, but he gave us two promises when he said go. He said in verse 18, all authority has been given to me, and then I will be with you. Jesus has the power. Jesus is the king of this world. He's our rescuer. He's our older brother. He's our God. And then he promises to be with us. I will be with you always. Is there any better promise in all of the Bible than that? That Jesus says, I will be with you. In 2013... We had been on the mission field for about a year and decided to come back to the States uh, for a family wedding. We were really excited to celebrate Claire and Josh getting married. We were excited to uh, announce to friends and family that we were expecting baby number four. Excited to speak English again, to eat at Chick-fil-A, to go to the doctor, uh, to reconnect with friends. And when we were back... um, We were driving a borrowed rental van. I was driving it, um, confusing Rogers, Arkansas, road construction. I didn't understand. I was driving like I was back in Spain and caused an accident. I was at fault, uh, and since I didn't have my name on the rental agreement, I was an uninsured motorist, which is a very bad thing to be. Uh, Right, Cotter? (laughs) So that was a difficult day for me. We had just been in the States for a few days, and uh, we went out to eat with family that night and came back to the house where we were staying. And I'm just sitting on the couch holding Cora because it had been a very stressful day for me, a terrible day. And she should have been in bed, but I was holding her. And suddenly the whole house shook. There was a boom. And I I thought the propane tank outside must have exploded. so I set Cora down and go look out the front door, and there was half a pickup truck stuck in our house. And the wall to Cora's bedroom was on her bed. So I come back in and tell Cassie to take all the kids out the back door to go to her parents' house. Um, it was a terrible night. And for the, the week that followed, I was getting insurance calls and said, you know, Mr. Phillips, we want to talk to you about the accident. And I'd say, you're going to have to be more specific because we've got a couple of those going on right now. So we stapled a tarp to the front of the house, uh, enjoyed the wedding, started packing our bags. Uh, As I was trying to wrap up loose ends and get back to Spain, uh, we went to traffic court down in northwest Arkansas to try to wrap these things up. And um, I just remember the fear as the judge said... um, no, we can't, we can't close this out yet. And I said, I'm sorry, Your Honor, but I'm a missionary and I'm going back to Spain in a couple days. And he said, well, 
I can throw you in jail if that's what you would want. And the adrenaline just coursed through my body, and I just felt this warmth go all the way to the top of my head. And no, that's not, <laughs> that's not what I want. So we we're, we're stay at a hotel near the airport, getting ready to fly back to Spain. And uh, Cassie says, I think I'm having a miscarriage. And we go to the emergency room and um, lost our baby, change our flights, wait a few days, and fly back to Spain. And as we get back to Spain, we realize that our storage unit at our apartment had been broken into. Our stuff had been stolen while we were gone. And that summer, I tried to do all the right things in the wake of this trauma. I rested, went on vacation, slept, talked to good friends, read good books, exercised. But as the months went by, I started to struggle with anxiety and panic attacks, unable to sleep, nightmares about somebody crashing into our apartment building and and blowing it up. Nightmares about trying to get back to the States, but getting arrested because of this traffic situation. Uh, having my, this, the, the lady in the accident complain about an injury and having my uh, financial future ruined. Uh, sometimes illogical nightmares, but you can't argue with anxiety, with logic. I was depressed. I, my body hurt. It was hard to get out of bed. Took a lot of baths made appointments in the morning just so that I would have a reason that I had to get out of the house and force myself to do something. So we're dealing with the grief of losing our baby. At that time, a high chance that we would never be able to have more kids. And I, at the same time, felt like I was losing my mind, literally. It felt like a runaway train, and I couldn't do anything to stop it. I was terrified. I was tempted to drink or do other things to try to deal with this um, and just slow my mind down. I could be playing with my kids on the floor in our apartment, laughing. I could, I could be sitting with friends at a table, telling jokes. But inside, I felt like a different person, like a divided person. Like All this panic and anxiety is just going 100 miles an hour while I'm my body is living in the present moment. It got worse at night. Many nights for the following year, the only way I could fall asleep was just to curl up in a little ball and pull my knees to my chest and say, Jesus, be with me. Jesus, be with me. Jesus, be with me. Until I fell asleep. And there's a lot I can say about this situation. I can talk about the loneliness, about the things that I wish I would have done differently. I could talk about my transactional relationship with God, where I would say to him, I'm a missionary, and this is how you pay me back? The one thing I wanted was for my family to be healthy, and our baby dies? But there's two things I want to say. The first is that God can absorb our anger. God, our Father, can absorb our anger. He can take it. You're not going to diminish him by being honest about what you're going through. The lament psalms are our prayer book. They can guide us about how to grieve and be honest with God. But secondly, my whole life I had wondered if I was a Christian. 
I felt like a fraud. I, even as a little kid, would just ask Jesus in my heart over and over and over again. I would sin, do something wrong, ask Jesus in my heart again. Rededicate my life, right? Any other Baptists grow up and rededicating their life all the time? I had followed this call into ministry, fundraised, moved to another country to be a minister, been a leader in my church, helped start a church, taught people the Bible, discipled people, led people to Christ, and I often felt like I was an imposter, and everyone else had the real thing except for me. But ever since this season of anxiety and depression, I haven't since then to this day, had a doubt that I belong to God. I have doubts about other things, but not about that. In my darkest moment, my spirit inside of me cried out, Father, God, Jesus, my brother, be with me, help me. And that lit a fire in my bones. When you think about missions, maybe you're like me and you're inspired by missionary biographies. Uh, reading the journals of Jim Elliot is probably the, one of the most life-shaping things I ever did. Great book. Maybe you resonate with Francis Chan, the well-known pastor who recently announced that he's going to move his family overseas. And he asked this interesting question, what do we do on a normal day that even compares to this? when he talked about sharing the gospel with unreached people in Southeast Asia. Maybe that sparks a fire in your bones when you hear people talk like that. If I could preach here for six weeks, I'd talk about vocation. I'd talk about doing whatever job you have in front of you with an eye for pleasing God and loving your neighbor. I'd talk about the beauty and dignity of weeding your garden, loving your neighbors, being the most honest mechanic, treating your employees with dignity and paying them a good wage. I talk about the way God watches and honors every one of us when we care for a child or an aging person. But I'm going to trust the elders to teach about those things. This morning, I just want to challenge us I think God would like to interrupt us and lift up our perspective to eternity and to the world, to the globe, and the permanence of eternity. Maybe you hear about the need around the world and that lights a spark inside of you. Maybe you want your light to shine in a dark place. Maybe you're willing or even excited about the idea of laying down your life for people who don't have any access to the good news. You know, there's seven and a half billion people on earth, and over three billion of them are unreached. By the definition that Rich shared with us about 2% uh, Christians in a country, making it a reached country, Spain is still unreached because they use political power and laws to try to force people to be Christians, and it fell apart once people became free. Thousands of people in Asia who don't even have scripture in their own language. How are they ever going to hear about Jesus without God's word? People who starve to death 
while we throw food away. Maybe you hear these things and you say, I want to participate in that. Maybe God designed you with a love for culture and for travel. Maybe he gave you a gift of service that could meet a need overseas. If you feel those sparks, I want to encourage you to fan those flames. If you can numb it, people say, if you feel a call to ministry and you can walk away with it, walk away from it, try to. And I want to say the opposite. If you feel those sparks, love for people, a desire to make your life count for eternity, don't try to make it go away. You can make it go away. Don't just try to get obsessed with a hobby and comfort and money and debt and chasing a higher paycheck and comfort for this 80 or 70 or 90 years you have that's going to be gone. Fan the sparks into flame. The world needs Christians who are willing to say, I'm willing to lay down my life. Here, yes. In McDonald County, yes. But also across the ocean, where there isn't any access to gospel preaching churches and Christian community. So fan the flame. But I want to say that Christian life isn't just marked by the sacrifices that we make for God. That's not what this message is telling you to go do something. Christian life isn't marked by the sacrifices we make. Our life should be defined by the love of God for us. Christian life should be defined by God's love for us. If you lose sight of the love of God and just try to do the right thing or what people need, you've lost it all. Don't lose sight of God's love for you. His love isn't just for you, though. It's for the whole world. What the world really needs is not for you to move overseas. What the world really needs is for you to see how much you need Jesus and how much he loves you. Then you can respond to that with sharing his love. You can't take the gospel if you don't believe the gospel for yourself. And you can't take the gospel to anybody who needs it worse than you do. How can you talk about the love of God if you don't believe it for yourself? You can't teach anybody about grace if you don't believe in grace and learn it for yourself. So the question then, if we believe in that love of God for ourselves, I want to ask, what would faith working itself out in love look like in your life? What would faith working itself out in love look like when it comes to the unreached around the world? How could your life look different if you didn't have to project a persona Guard your reputation. Take care of yourself. What if Jesus had secured all of those things for you? What if Jesus was really going to take care of you forever? What if everything you need in acceptance and love is met in Jesus? How could your life look differently? What if you were adopted by God and you were his child what if God owned everything and he was going to take care of every need that you had? How would that change your life? What if you were eternally loved 
and cared for by the creator of the universe, then what could missions look like for you? How would that impact the way you pray, the way you give, or even your willingness to go? God has given you gifts. When I look at this room and think about the gifts that are represented here, if all those gifts hooked up with a passion for God's love, what would happen? What kind of difference would, would that make in McDonald County and in the world if they, just the gifts in this room, not to mention all the other churches that are worshiping today? What kind of difference would that make if we had a, an ambition for Christ to be known here and at the ends of the earth? What if by the power of the Holy Spirit we all had a fire in our bones to share the love of God that we've received? what the gifts in this room could do. God has made an investment in you. He's given you talents, abilities. He's given you a story, a background, experiences that have shaped you. We all know that, that we have to do something with what God has given us, right? But I think there's another part of what God has given you that I don't hear talked about. God has made an investment in you in your suffering. God has giving, given you a gift in the scars that you carry. Your scars can be the places where the light of Christ, the love of God, shine. As we go preaching the gospel, making disciples, he goes with us. That's his promise. He's with us in our suffering. He doesn't leave us alone in the desert to die. One of the things that's very clear in the New Testament is that God uses the weak things of the world, especially and including our suffering and pain, to put his glory on display. I'm going to say for a minute that suffering can really rob us of perspective. I know this firsthand. When, when pain comes your way, when life doesn't go how you wanted it to, you start to just really focus on yourself and how you're struggling. That's normal. I'm not shaming that. But it can, it can push us away from God. And you might be here today saying, listen, I used to be a strong Christian. I used to care about this stuff. I used to do this or that, follow the rules, serve. I was a good person. But the valley came. The darkness came. And now where's God? I've said the same thing. I don't judge you for saying that because I know what it feels like. But you might sit there and say, Brian, I cared about all this and it didn't do me any good. So what am I supposed to do? Can I suggest that maybe... God isn't allowing you to lose your walk with him. Maybe he's rescuing you from a superficial relationship with him. Maybe you are like me, and I still am a lot of times, in a transactional relationship with God, where I'm going to do good stuff and I expect him to do good stuff back to me. Right? Maybe our suffering that God is not 
happy. He's not glad for bad things to happen to you. I'm not trying to say that. But maybe God is using the brokenness of this world and the horrible things that happen to us, and he takes an evil thing that the enemy has intended for bad, and he's going to use it to break down those fake, superficial relationships we have with him. Maybe your suffering has helped expose the truth that you loved other things more than God, and now those things are taken away. Now you feel far from him because he didn't give you the stuff that you thought you deserved. Don't despise him for that. Don't despise God for the severe mercy of taking away the other things that have distracted us from him. Suffering is an invitation to a deeper walk with Jesus. God isn't content for you or for me to have a shallow love for him, easily shaken by the pressures of friends or the loss of comfort or even deep grief. God aims for us to have a deep, rock-solid, unshakable relationship with him. God shook up my transactional relationship with him. He still is shaking it up. And I wouldn't say that that, I'm glad that happened. I wish I had our baby. I wish that stuff would have never happened. I'm not going to say it's worth it. But I'm going to say I can see what God has done. That I have a peace inside that I know I'm his son. That I did not have before suffering. Psalm 78, 72 says, With an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Even in the darkest valleys of sacrifice, of loss, our shepherd is with us. He will not lead us into the wilderness to die. I want to stand here today and testify that God has been near to me in my weakness. He's up to a million things in my life, and I'm only aware of two or three of them at a time. I think of Paul in jail writing these letters to churches. He thought he was just writing letters to churches. He had no idea that this was going to be the Bible, and people were going to be teaching it and believing it one day. He just thought he was writing a letter. We don't know what we're doing, what God is going to do with our life and the pain that he lets come into it. Even when I am unaware, I know he loves me. I know he's with me, and that's what I hold on to. That's the fire in my bones. A life following Jesus on mission, even to the ends of the earth, is worth it. Mark 8, 34 and 35 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. It's worth it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you love us, you see us. Thank you for sending your son because you loved us so much that you wanted us in your family. Help us, Lord, to believe that. Help us turn from everything else and cling to Jesus. Thank you for the comfort that he gives us. Thank you for the forgiveness that he purchased on the cross. And as we receive that love and forgiveness, help us 
to share that with the people around us, to make disciples in Anderson and Knoll and all around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to the Lord's table. We have four tables in the corners with the Lord's Supper set up. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion or the Lord's Supper is a serious celebration of Jesus' death in our place. It tells us that we were so sinful that God himself had to come and die or else we would have no hope. But it also tells us that God loved us so much that he would spare no cost, even the life of his son, to bring us into his family. You don't have to be a member of this church to eat and drink this morning. We invite anyone who's trusting in Jesus and repenting of their sin to join today. When we eat the bread and drink the cup, we remember the body and blood of Jesus. His body was broken and his blood was poured out for the remission of our sins. If you're not trusting Jesus today, we love you. We're glad you're here, but this meal isn't for you. If you claim to be a Christian, but you're refusing to fight against sin by Jesus' power, if you're unwilling to turn from it, I want to encourage you not to eat communion with us today. It would be of no service to you. Instead, consider the condition of your soul and humble yourself before God. Ask him to help you to grab on to Jesus and let go of sin. If you need to take some time in silence to pray, to reconcile with someone, to seek the Lord, you're welcome to do that. So I want to invite you, as the music plays, just to go to one of these four tables, whatever is closest to you. Um, Take the bread and the cup back to your seat, and in a few minutes, we'll all eat and drink together. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, the Lord has prepared this table for all who love him and trust in him alone for salvation. All who repent of their sins, who sincerely believe in the Lord Jesus as their Savior, and who desire to live in obedience to him are invited to come with gladness.